I think creative people inherently are, are, they find, and this is coming from someone who is his one, like, you know, we find it hard to work in these like systems that are just layers upon layers upon layers of like opaque paper that sits in front of like a vision and then like the final thing. And so, you know, for us and what we're trying to do is, is really try to pull back some of those layers and a creative person has a vision, let's, let's let them accelerate their vision while still participating in like the normal day-to-day -day business stuff that needs to happen in the organization that needs to happen, right? Like creative people are inherently not organized. And so I think the way to do it is tools that get out of their way rather than I think right now, it's like a bunch of tools that are in their way in terms of shipping stuff and getting stuff out. Welcome to Ad Creative, a new show from Pencil about the unexpected ideas that have changed the game for DTC founders and operators with a focus on actionable takeaways. I'm Chase Moseni. Thanks for joining us. This week, we're joined by Zach Murray, head of design at Triple Whale and founder of Foreplay. We discuss a wide range of topics that I think are really exciting and you'll learn a lot from. A few of the things that are included are how to think creatively, what it means to build products, and how the best ideas are formulated and turned into something meaningful. I think you'll take a lot out of this one and be able to use it in multiple different ways. Enjoy. I'm really excited for this episode of Ad Creative. We're talking to Zach Murray. He is the design lead at Triple Whale, but more importantly, he is the founder of Addison.io. Or do you want me to just call it Addison? What do you like people calling it? Addison works. We're yeah. we're actually planning on on rebranding soon back to foreplay. So yeah, but yeah, Addison works. So what's the what's the story with uh, why it went from foreplay to Addison? I can kind of like backtrack to give some yeah, more please. context. We're going to talk about if you're just going to like my, I guess, like professional journey. My first business was a company called Vanquish Media. Um, we mainly did like very basic agency style stuff like websites, SEO, shit like that. And then a few years into that, I had, I had met someone that was building e-commerce brands. And I was like, oh, this seems super cool. Like I'm sick of building like agency web, like or like websites for dentists and shit like that. And then, so we started an e-commerce brand called Nomadic Fabrics, and we scaled it like super, super quick back in the dropshipping days. And then two years after, two years into it, we ended up selling it. With that same co-founder, we started Foreplay. So essentially, we were like scaling Nomadic very well. We're like, oh, like why don't we do this for other people? So we came up with an agency name called Foreplay. Since then, me and that partner have split. I kept Foreplay, and Addison started as like an internal project for Foreplay. You know, we had the core issue of like saving ad creative, creating mood boards, et cetera. And then Foreplay was still existing. Addison was kind of taking off. So I needed to separate them. But luckily, I'm I'm giving up client work fully. I've always loved the name Foreplay. I think it's a, really in alignment with like what we do and where our product roadmap is going. And so essentially, I'm just it's kind of kind of kind of going to come full circle. And yeah, we're going to rebrand Addison as Foreplay and essentially try to enable agencies and brands to really fast track any sort of pre-production process and enable them to create, you know, really great creative at scale and, and keep it all kind of organized in, in one place. Yeah, that's really, that's really cool. It's interesting because I've been, I've been talking to someone from, uh, from air, I'm in like a little class with them. It's interesting talking to them essentially about like this problem that people have, which is organizing their creative. And so uh, I feel this incredibly acutely, right. Which is, your Google Drive is a misery. For your sure. Slack For sure. is a misery trying to find things. Your Notion is a misery trying to find things. There's no actual systematic way to do this that feels right. And anyone who you ask, 
do it like post the Twitter thread. Everyone will have a very specific way to do it, which means that there's no actual way to do it. A hundred percent. And I would say like what air is doing and they're solving like a really awesome problem about like organizing kind of like your final creative and, and, and making sure that everything is whatever. I would say like that problem becomes exponential when you're talking about like a pre-production process. And so like my background too is like I was in commercial production for a little bit, like doing like 60 second spots, 30 second spots, you know, like that's a bunch of resources going into one singular asset. But when you go and, and there's a lot of really, really cool, good tools built to do that from, you know, cloud man, like cloud storage solutions to like frame IO for asset review. But a lot of those tools tend, and I took a lot of those tools into direct response marketing when I, when I was doing that transition, a lot of those tools do fall apart when you're talking about a million different iterations and, you know, and when you're talking about organizing finalized creative assets, it's like that's one part, but then you're talking about all of the files and assets that led up to that. And like, you're kind of just even segmenting that problem across like a ton of different software as a kind of like, it is becomes tremendously segmented. So yeah, I think like everybody's feeling this problem and everyone's, whether it's like Google Sheets, mix the Google Drive, mix the million different things, like they've found a way to get by, but they're definitely not flourishing and they're, ne- they're not executing on the level of efficiency that I think is possible. And like the level of efficiency that would drive their business, drive their creative and stuff like that. So yeah, like we're super excited to be kind of like dipping in our toes to the problem and, and trying to make people's lives easier. And something that's important to me is, is making creative people like work a lot better, you know, like I think creative people inherently are, they find, and this is coming from someone who is his one, like, you know, we find it hard to work in these like systems that are just layers upon layers upon layers of like opaque paper that sits in front of like a vision and then like the final thing. And so, you know, for us and what we're trying to do is, is really try to pull back some of those layers and a creative person has a vision. Let's, let's let them accelerate their vision while still participating in like the normal day-to-day business stuff that needs to happen in the organization that needs to happen, right? Like creative people are inherently unorganized. And so I think the way to do it is tools that get out of their way r- rather than I think right now it's like a bunch of tools that are in their way in terms of shipping stuff and getting stuff out. That's a, a brilliant way to look at it, which is essentially like creative people don't need more friction. They need less friction. So mm-hmm. I would look at uh, creative people's like minds is like atoms exploding continuously sideways. And so you almost need to let that happen because that's where the magic happens. So like when we talk about pencil, we always say, you know, what we want to do is actually empower creative people because they need to do all the stuff upstream, which is create kick-ass assets, right? Like we want people to just be creating amazing stuff. Let a machine do all the hard work of like the creative production in the middle, like create amazing assets and then let data and the machine do everything. And it's exactly the same thing. Let's get out of people's ways and let's just let them do the thing that they're, you know, exceptional at. Um, but I think what you're what you're saying is exactly right because I you know we deal with creative people all the time and it's it's hard man because everyone yeah. who's putting those processes together is super rigorous about data and so they built the system for kind of like data solutions not creative solutions I think that's yeah this is kind of the next wave of this this whole ecom thing is going to be focused around like how you actually build creative creativity into your brand into like it's almost like what's your creativity stack yeah. The founder of Triple L AJ has like a really good like quote that he echoes about this. And he's just like, his thing is like, humans do the things that they're at best and the machines do the rest or something like that, you know? And I feel like if we can get to that point, you know, like one, people are living and leading happier lives and two, like the work is better. And I, I also believe that on the advertising side of things that like advertising can do one of two things. It can make the world a tremendously ugly place that no one wants to be or can make 
a delightful place, right? And so at the end of the day, like, I think a lot of like bad advertising comes from the reaction to how hard it is to get delightful advertising to market, right? And so at the end of the day, like maybe it's a bit esoteric, but if the world is filled with bad advertising, we're all living shittier lives. We can't get away from it, right? It's it's right. Uh, there's there's no world in which advertising. I mean, it's having this conversation. So you you said esoteric. I, I was getting a little historical with one of our last interviews. We were talking about advertising has existed since the beginning of time. It just shaped differently, but it's it's the same thing. War has existed. You know, all of these things that we think are unique to like we're living a unique experience. It's like no, dude, this has been happening for millennia. And we're just having our version of it. And it's just a little more advanced because we have more technology. Our parents had a little less technology, but you know their parents had a little less technology. But we all kind of experienced relatively the same things. And we're not going to get away from advertising. So I think, I think that's a really, really good, that's a really good way to look at it. You answered my first, kind of my first big question, which is what, how you got the idea and how the brand impacts people. I think this is like amazing. I'm, I'm curious what's been hard that you didn't expect to be hard. Going back to the, the idea thing, it actually, the, the idea evolved pretty, like not from the original idea. The yeah. original idea was like, we had a team of like 12 people doing like agency style stuff. And so we had this like Slack channel where I made it a thing where it's like, okay, if you're going to be part of our team, like every week you need to give like five good ad creators in the Slack channel. And it was really good because I think incentivizing creative research, it one, it's like, it puts our perspective outbound, what are other people doing? And I think if you can do that at scale across an entire company, the insights kind of compound. And so there was the, that was like the first version of Addison was like, oh, like what if we just created like an inspo library? And there's companies out there doing that where it's like, oh, a curated list of, of stuff. And I started building that originally, but I quickly found that one, it was tremendously subjective and two, like it didn't really like harness like the vastness of what, the tools we are using are. So like one, like Facebook ad library, for example, you can see any brand's ads. And so I think, that, like I said, there are tools that are going through and finding ad creative that they think is good based on a set of criteria and showing it to you. That's cool, but you're only getting like a singular perspective, right? From like the team that's building this library. And it might be a really good perspective, but it's definitely not diverse. Something that we're doing with Addison is like, how do we accumulate that that subjectivity at scale amongst all of our users and then surface those insights to the users themselves and have that kind of like consistent feedback loop. Um, and so that's how like the idea evolved was like, oh, actually what I would really like to do is build more of an ecosystem where people are using a tool for you for utility. And then, you know, like off the back of that, the insights and, and being able to see taste from a million different people using the tool is like what the real value is. And so like, the thing that actually made me think about the problem like that um, was like, there's this idea and I can't remember where I heard it from was that it, it was a story of like a carpenter who he built beautiful furniture and then his son had figured out a way to repurpose the sawdust. And some of the most amazing companies are the ones that not only build the beautiful furniture, but also can repurpose their sawdust. And the sawdust, it's like, it's, when it's the sawdust from your machine, it's even better than if going out and buying sawdust and then trying to build something from it. And so like, that was where I really started to think about like, okay, like one, let's build a valuable tool. And then two, what's the sawdust of the tool that we built? And then like, how can we repurpose that and create value? And so that was kind of like the actual like full kind of timeline of thinking of the idea and then how it evolved. And what Addison is, is still evolving pretty rapidly. And it's, 
you know, it's based on our customers and, and what their problems are. And so, you know, Addison's going to be tremendously different. I obviously have like a, a vision of what I think it can be, but I think something that's important is just, yeah, once you find like a little bit of magic that people like, like go out to the people that are paying you and like figure out what they actually need. And so a year from now, Addison's going to be very different than what it is now. And I hope it's different than what I think it can be. Yeah, that's great. We, uh, I read a, I read something uh, the other day, kind of drawing on your sawdust analogy, which is what's their name? Starbucks makes about a fourth of their revenue every year from, from gift cards. Mm-hmm. And the gift card is amazing is no one ever buys in the increment of the gift card. So if there's like $19 on there, they usually buy $25. So you always make more than what the gift card is worth. So it's like, there's always incremental revenue that you can attach. Mm-hmm. They know kind of that. And there's about a hundred, say 150 to $200 million worth of unused dollars that they have that essentially is a revolving line that they go and put at the bank and draw interest from that is never Dude, used. What's insane about the Starbucks? So like they have like the, the card that you can reload on your own phone. Yeah, yeah. So there's more cash in that system than there's cash in, cash in any central US bank. So Starbucks is more liquid than any bank in the United States of America. It's actually insane. But it is the sawdust. It is exactly the sawdust that you're talking about, right? And I think it's funny when you tap a vein like that for your business and you figure out like, okay, this is the thing. I mean, I can just talk about our own experience where it's like, should we do this? Should we do that? What's the vein? And it's like, oh, the actual vein is like, there is a bridge people are trying to cross, which is performance and creative. And they just need, the bridge is really long and there's no, they don't speak to each other. Let's just compress bridge so that people feel more comfortable and it's a it's faster and so it's the same thing here the two people at each end of those bridges uh, of that bridge in this like ecosystem like they're tremendously different people usually and so like the only way to really like get them to like the level where the communication can flow easily i think is like tools that enable both of them independently you know like yeah for the creative to find value in the tool it needs to it needs to serve them and then for like the, for example, like the performance marketer to find value in the tool, it needs to independently serve them. Not like, oh, yeah. they're coming together for like this one little, this thing that we're working collaboratively on. Like it's like value to that, value to that. And then like the communication is just a byproduct of like them being served individually and like finding value from the tool. I think that's super important because it's hard to get teams to use tools, right? If there's nothing worse than like your boss being like, oh, we're going to use this to organize this you're like oh like now i have to like have another tab that i'm gonna be like whatever like friday comes around i'm gonna like go toss shit into this thing that we're doing ideally everyone's getting served from the tool individually it's like something like notion right like collaboration is is secondary the the real value is like oh it just lets an individual organize their things by themselves and then it becomes easier to share them with other people Oh, under 100%. You can you can take something that it has unique utility to you and then it, it becomes a force multiplier in your business. I think this is kind of the the unique thing. I, I was um I think about like um getting retention for someone is like you have to do kind of two things and they have like you know sub subcategories, which is like value creation and then value extraction. And if people can feel essentially like, oh, okay, this is this is something that was easy and something that's repeatable then it becomes something that they do again and again and again. And essentially, you know, LTV grows, whatever, you know, from there. And so for D2C companies, it's a little bit different, right? Because it's saying like, okay, is the product good? Was the experience good? For like a B2B company like you, it's like, was that easy to set up? 
do I think I can do it again and give it to my team and it's going to, it's going to help everybody. And so it's, it's very much like that. And each person has to feel value in a different way. So like what you're talking about, a creative person wants to save a bunch of things to draw inspiration when they create stuff. The performance marketer wants to go and like benchmark like, okay, well, this person did this, this person did this, these things are similar is the creative that we're having, having a similar kind of visual through line, right? Mm -hmm. Both are doing kind of the same thing, but a different thing. Yeah. 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 Funny enough, there's a little bit of insight about our customer as well. What we found is that the people actually saving the creative tend to be the performance marketers. Yeah. So because like, essentially that's like, they want a good way of communicating downline to like what they want. Like the desire is like great, a great ad, the facilitators, the creative. And then often like the, that's kind of what we've been seeing is like creative strategist, performance marketers here. They're relaying stuff to um, an actual individual contributor, whether it's like a freelancer or, or an internal creative team. And a lot of the the tools that we're building out is, is kind of going further down that workflow of, okay, you have a link to a piece of inspiration. What are the other assets that someone's going to need to actually execute on this and connecting those, those, those sort of things. Yeah, that totally makes sense. It, it, it's funny kind of how you like the thing you build has ends up having a life of its own um, mm-hmm. and it's being used in different ways. Like, like you said, it's, you just kind of say like, okay, where is the magic? Let's go, let's go kind of uh, drill into that. So I'm going to go back to one of the questions. This is because it's one of my favorite ones. I think they're super interesting ways. Like what's been, so you've been doing this simultaneously, right? You had your own business. Now you've been mm-hmm. working at Trail for a while and you've been building this thing kind of the entire time. What's been hard about doing that? And like, how have you dealt with those, those hardships? To add just a little bit of context to it. Um, yeah. So I had, I had the agency running. I decided to start building Addison and I wanted to start deploying a lot more attention to Addison Triple Whale was previously a, a client of Foreplay. We, we did like a video for them pretty early on. And our, my communication was specifically AJ, the founder, just kind of kept happening. And they kind of started drawing me in on a bunch of random other projects as they needed it, right? Like they were scaling super quick. So there was a lot of little things for me to jump in on. Um, and then they eventually like proposed the question of like, hey, like, would you come join the team? I said no for a few months. You know, I've never had like a job ever in like my entire life. Um, mm-hmm. And so like one, I wasn't looking for a job too. Two, it's a very alien thing. But then I kind of took a step back and it was like one, like client work is tremendously stressful. And I also didn't find a lot of pride in client work. Like I found pride in the work that I was doing, but in a way like, I, did, I, I wanted to build something and yeah. with agencies that provide value. But for me, it's like, it wasn't really hitting that fulfillment mark. And so Eventually, the conversation kind of kept going with Triple Whale, and I had looked at it as an opportunity to be like, one, like I get to I get to build a, another tool in the, a similar ecosystem, and two, like I'm gonna get to learn from these guys that are scaling this company tremendously fast. And so I looked at it very much as like a learning opportunity and a way of like really honing in my focus. And so I would say like, because I was going from a state of having like a million different clients and a million different types of projects to like on the flip side of that now, all of my time is spent building products for D2C founders and D2C agencies. The transition actually didn't have a lot of hardships in it. I've, yeah. I've never really felt as focused as I do now. And I think my whole, my entire life, like everyone's always telling you to focus. And I think it's one of those things where everyone has a little bit of ego. It's like, oh, I can do this. I can do that. And even though I am still doing two things in my head, I'm, I am consistently thinking about a singular customer. And yeah. very often there's ideas that 
I have an idea for Addison. I have an idea for Triple Whale, and they share those ideas. And yeah. a lot of it comes from I'm finally like deploying a lot of my subconscious thinking throughout the day because I'm mm-hmm. thinking about a singular customer base. So I would say like in from starting like starting to join Triple Whale and then you know moving into Addison like there's only been positive effects I think on both sides of it. Obviously shit can get busy on both sides and there's just like normal time management issues. But I think, like I said, like I've never felt more focused in my entire life. And so I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. Yeah. I think that's, uh, that's kind of one, you know, we talk about force multipliers and like sometimes see changes in your life where it's essentially like you get something that just aligns perfectly with who you are and what you're trying to accomplish almost gives you kind of this exponential ability to grow, you know, the thing that you want and the thing that you need simultaneously. Um, yeah. it, it's a pretty, it's a pretty special thing. I think you, you've kind of like, I keep saying the tap to vein. I don't know why that's on my head uh, in my mind right now or on the tip of my tongue, but it's, it's really interesting to run those things in tandem because they are the same customer, right? And they're having the exact, you know, the, the problems that they're having are essentially part of their, the ecosystem of their problems, um, or their challenges, excuse me. And, mm-hmm. Solving those, so I mean, think solving those things. So, I mean, I talk about it on a daily basis with our team is essentially like we're lucky enough to solve problems for people who delight people all over the world. Like, what's better than that? You know, do you want to be helping build cloud infrastructure for some fucking, I don't know, Fortune 500 company? That's boring. Or would you rather be hanging out with, you know, people who are selling cool shit and, uh, and want to have a good time? Like, I choose the latter every day. Like, we're really lucky to be able to do that. And I think, yeah, exactly what you said is right. I mean, I, by the way, I've done this before where you work at a company and then you try to build something and they're completely at odds and it's much more difficult because right. it's, customers are different. The product is different. You have to change the way that you think. Like you completely have to transition and, and context shift. And so I think what you're saying is exactly is something really important for entrepreneurs who are trying to do things on the side or, or simultaneously is you want the you don't want to fight the river right? Try to flow in the same direction if possible. It's not always possible, but if you can, you know, leverage it to, to the best of your ability. Yeah, that's great. So I'm curious about this. You talked about the, the magic, the magic that you followed. What's an idea or, or essentially the idea to this point for Addison that's kind of changed, changed the game and, and been something that's been important to customers and felt like something you could, you know, drive value, you know, obviously for revenue, but also growing the business uh, in in a in a new way. Sorry, like kind of like what what's like a surprising thing that I that I found out while building oh, exactly. it. Something that's something that surprised you, or something that maybe was unexpected. That either was an idea that you just tested, or or something yeah. that kind of came up through customer interactions that has had like a a big impact on the business. The biggest thing, by far the biggest thing, that's impacted like traction was building our Chrome extension. So. Mm-hmm. The MVP of our product, I had initially built it with a bunch of like Upwork freelancers and stuff like that. Um, and the old version of the product, you had to like copy links from Facebook ad library, paste them. It was like three to four clicks to save an ad. It still got you to like the end point. And we had users using it. And we had users like saving like hundreds of ads a day with this really shitty process. But it was... And we had like a few like users that would trickle in, they'd start paying. And like, you know, we'd have like customers that love the tool but it wasn't really scaling. And then we essentially built a Chrome extension. Um, it was kind of like one of like the first projects that like our new developer that came on to work on the project full time did. 
and like that like it's like it's very clear and like our signups and and revenue like that's when people started saving more ads it's when they started getting more value from the tool and i always looked at it as like oh like the chrome extension would be a nice to have the real core value is uh you know saving ads and that's true but there was a very key like facilitator that was missing and that was that there was it was annoying to save ads like we went from annoying to save ads to mildly annoying to save ads but it still wasn't like a magical moment or like delightful to use and adding the chrome extension made that whole process delightful so i don't know if it was surprising i, I was surprised about how much of an impact it had i, I always yeah. thought it was some sort of impact but like it was like oh like this is definitely what we should have built a long time ago i think there's something really uh, important for people to take from that which is first bias is probably the worst thing you can have in any situation, right? So like we talked about this, why you have Addison, right? Save as many things as you have so you cannot have bias. You can see kind of a full picture of what's going on. Use pencil, for instance, so you can take the bias out and try new things. But a big one is what does time to value mean for your customer base, right? So if you're saying performance marketers, just let's use that, those or, or, or media buyers, fucking stressed out. They have you know, a bunch of campaigns running, people are asking them what's happening in D2C. It's like very, very, it's a very stressful job, right? Yeah. And so they don't want to do anything extra that they don't need to do, even though they need, they know that there are things that are really core to them leveling up their business. And so if you say, Hey, this thing takes you 30 seconds, or this thing takes you three minutes, three minutes is a non-starter. 40 seconds is like, Oh, okay, that's easy. And oh, it's in my Chrome. I don't have to log into a platform. Remember, we talked about that at the beginning. Shit, I don't want to start another platform. And it's yeah. very fascinating because essentially that's a customer first perspective. And I, I mean, I wrote a little message on Twitter about this the other day. It was like, you know, we're, we're all so focused. We're all reading the same trends. So the only thing that we have that can level us up is actually focusing on our customer and focusing on them, not us. And too often, everyone, B2B, like doesn't matter is focused very much on us. We're too, we have too much of, we're too excited about the product we're building, not how it actually is functionally relevant for the customer that is, that is giving you money for it. And so I, I think that's a very important insight that you guys, uh, you guys found there and the revenue and all of your, your signups show that you should focus there always. For us, what it was too, is that it reminded people that we existed. Mm. And so obviously we're building kind of a platform on the back of other platforms like Facebook ad library and stuff. And so the previous version, like someone would need to have Addison open, copy the link, bring it over. And like, mm. if someone had signed up last week, they haven't done ad research for a week. Are they going to remember? But now with like our onboarding flow, like people sign up, they get pushed to download their Chrome extension. And then now every time they go to Facebook ad library or TikTok, there's like the save to Addison button that's right there. And it's one, it reminds them that, Hey, this exists Two, It's seamless to use. That was a big thing is like, I think a lot of people sign up for a million tools, right? And you forget about them. And yeah, people send you like follow-up emails and stuff like that, but you never open those. And so for us, like driving to the Chrome extension, making sure it was in their browser. And then every time they go to use these tools that they're using in their day-to-day -day anyway, they're reminded like, oh, like there's a, there's a great way to to save this and, and start actioning it throughout, throughout our workflow. So yeah, that's by far the, probably one of the most impactful things that, that we've done. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 like uh, every time you open up your your computer and like Loom is there, and it's like, oh, you want to record something? I don't record anything. You just know, like, okay, I got to record Loom to do this. And there are other tools that have it. Um, I'm looking at what are my extensions I have here. I have Loom, I have Grammarly, I have uh, HubSpot. What else? I have uh, like a couple other things, and you always know, like, okay, I just go click on there. Same thing. Yeah, 
I think it's just be, it literally is be where your customers are. I mean, it's why SMS has become so important to DTC brands, right? Who's right. going to, how quickly are you going to read a text versus an email? I actively try to stay away from my personal email because it's, it is, it is a misery. Yeah, yeah. So on the note of SMS, I've got like a business idea that I really want someone else to do. Yeah. Um, have you ever heard of voicemail drops? Like uh, DDC, like doing a drop, like a drop for their business. So, so no. So there's these things called voicemail drops that were like old school marketing things, like from the nineties, they're really, really big. And essentially what it does is it leaves you a voicemail without making your phone ring. And everybody checks their voice. Anyway, I was listening to this podcast of this brand that had like hacked together a bunch of stuff to make voicemail drops work for their, for, for abandoned carts. And I was like, oh, like, I wonder right. if, I wonder if this exists like for Shopify stores or they were a Shopify store or whatever. And there's no, there's no voicemail drop app in like the Shopify ecosystem. And I was like, for like every, like, like any e-commerce brand is always willing to add like a follow-up sequence or something, especially if like yeah. you phone number, and I personally think it's like, I would rather get like a voicemail drop that didn't make my phone ring than like a text message. And I listen to yeah. all my voicemails. So I feel like there's like a massive opportunity. If someone's listening to this, like, go build like a voicemail drop app and then put it on Shopify app store. Cause like there's no competition. And I think obviously it's not going to, I don't think it's going to be as big as SMS, but I still feel like it's, it's another channel for people to follow up with their customer. And I actually, I actually like it. Oh, like I wouldn't yeah. do it for a year and let recharge buy you. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's great. That's great. That's, that's a new one, right? I'm going to start asking what's the business idea you can't do that someone else should do. That's, that's fire. I think people will love that. Yeah, I wish I wish I had the time to do it because I think it would. I do think though, whoever the first mover is isn't, isn't going to win. Like I think like there's going to be oh. one of those things. There's a first mover, and then there's going to be a second, and then the, whoever comes in third is going to gobble it up. But nice thing is it would be on the Shopify ecosystem, and so yeah, I think there's like a, a pretty decently sized business to be built just doing that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, like we're all trying to find ways to cut through the noise, and like you said, you know. Why is SMS working? Because people are obsessed with their phone. They check it. But people all need to know what's in their voicemail. Like everyone looks at their voicemail. And I actually think there's an opportunity to like build something. Uh, we're going off on a tangent, but this is kind of fun to play around with. Have a lot of fun with it, which is like, obviously, there's a lot of voice AIs. It's like someone could just do something say, okay, well, let's, you know, let's test if British accents work better. Let's test yeah. if Canadian accents work better. Let's test, you know. Hey, we know that we're going to go target, uh, you know, these customers in the South. Should we have someone who sounds like they're from the South so that like it will resonate better with them? I think that's, there's a lot of amazing kind of experimentation you could do with that. So whoever's listening, uh, be the third person to do the business. So I'm curious how, what's customer acquisition been for, for you? Has it been just all through referral and word of mouth? Or is there anything that you're doing to essentially go outbound to people? Uh, so right now, outbound is mainly cold email. We've focused a decent amount on SEO. Unfortunately, like recently we've lost some of those listings, but for a while we were like ranking number, like on the first page for when people search Facebook ad library, stuff like that. So yeah, so I would say acquisition channels right now, cold email, SEO, that's hurting right now, but was doing good for a while. You know, we run like 10 bucks a day on Google ads for some very targeted key terms. Twitter has been pretty big. And then so a few channel partners and, and influencers have, have drove a good amount of traffic and, and signups right now. Like we are definitely still like a growth is obviously like my focus, but I'm also still very much focused on product. I think the product has like a, right now we're putting a lot of value, but I think there's like a lot of, there's a lot more like ground I want to take up before. Like, I don't want to say like blow this thing up because I don't think it's that easy, but 
I would say like a lot of my attention still going into product and and really figuring out how to provide more value to the customer before shifting a lot of my attention to growth. Um, right now, really like we ran a survey very recently that to our paying customers um, and word of mouth was our number one growth channel. I would love for that to stay our number one growth channel. And I think the way that that exists is with good product. So right now we haven't been doing a lot of outbound, but I very much enjoy the kind of like moderately speed growth that allows us to still talk to customers very intimately and, and make sure that we continue to iterate the product over the next few months. Um, I think that's going to change pretty drastically maybe in three months from now. I think in my head, that's when like I, I would really like to start scaling it. But right now, my head's very much focused on on product and a little bit of growth stuff. What's the what's like the feature or portion of the product you're you're most excited about right now? So one of them is discovery. So right now we don't surface all of the ads saved by other users. We have tens of thousands of ads saved now. So uh, we're going to add the ability to see all the other ads saved from other users. You can filter it by you know industry and category and stuff like that. So you don't have to do the research yourself. And then the other thing that we're building right now is a brief generator. Um, so how do we take these pieces of inspiration? And then right now, most of our our users are are taking these Addison links and then building them into briefs and Google Docs and stuff like that. Um, tremendously messy way of doing it, like easily broken, stuff like that. So that's the next major piece that we're building into our workflow is a brief generator to try to enable people to take this inspiration and delegate it in a meaningful way, um, an organized way, in a clear way. And we're building some AI stuff into that, which is kind of cool from like a copywriting perspective. And then the next feature from that is going to be like actual asset reviews. So things like Frame.io, commenting, markup, stuff like that is yeah. that's, that's like the main roadmap that's in my head right now. Right now, I think we're doing really, really great on inspiration. Now I want to build really great business processes for people to, to really action that inspiration in a, in a clear and meaningful way that drives the, the assets to be made. So. Well, how often are you uh, like talking to these to your customers and or prospective customers to because I think this is important for any type of business um, mm -hmm. to find whether you know your hypotheses around roadmap are are right. Everything I listed on roadmap there has been informed by customers. Like I had an idea of it, but it's been informed by customers. Some like actual tangible things that I have set up to try to facilitate this on like an ongoing basis. Like one, I talk to customers every day or someone will chat on intercom and like right now I do the intercom. So, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, they need an invoice sent to them. Sometimes, you know, they're having issues or, or product ideas. So I'll have some interaction with the customer on a daily basis. The things that I've set up to try to force that, I have a few filters in our intercom, which is like our chat app that surface people to me that I think will have meaningful insights. And so I filter... It's a, essentially a list that continuously updates based on how many ads someone has saved, how long they've been around. And so we have a few parameters set up of like, oh, they've been around for two weeks. They've saved over five, 400 ads. Um, they have the extension installed. And then when those people kind of come up, I'll like reach out to them and, and, and figure out, you know, one, how they're using the tool, what's missing and stuff like that. So I very often have like, you know, five to 10 new people in that list every day to, to reach out to. And I usually just, you know, do that in the morning. So. Well, that's great. Is the is the kind of then the framework that you use for questioning like how is this working for you? What is it missing? Are those kind of just the two core questions, or do you have like maybe you know like a more a broader? Hey, this is a five questions that I would ask just to get a baseline from every person. 
there's a few. So one, I try to push to get on the call with people still as much as possible. So my first ask is always a call. If they decline the call, then I have follow-up questions. On the call, the first thing I ask them to do is just screen, just screen share with me and be like, hey, show me how you use Addison. And there's a, quite a few times when I found things that one, we're not doing right, or two, they were doing wrong that we could try to make clear. And then most of the time when they take me through their workflow is like where I get insight without having to ask for it. If I do end up doing the follow-up questions, I mean, I would say too, like a lot of this often comes inbound without me having to ask, but I pretty much just say, you know, like what's the most annoying part of using Addison? What do you wish Addison had that it doesn't have? And then how would you describe Addison to your friends and family? And so the last one kind of helps with copywriting and positioning. The first two help with product, but often I'd much rather like get onto a call and just observe um, about how people are using the tool. And that, that seems to offer the, the best insights from, from what I've seen. Do you feel like when you, when you talk to people or maybe someone that you're talking to um, is asking about the process that they're a little hesitant to get on the phone with people? Or is that kind of like a, you think, a normal state for people? So, I mean, the people that I do end up reaching out to are people that, like I was saying, the, I can't remember the parameters are exactly, but it's like two weeks and saved 500 ads. That means they spent a good amount of time using this tool. I think that that cohort of people is often like, they would love to talk about who made it because they found a thing that makes their life better. So like most of the time people are down for it. If I were to send that message to all of our customers, I'm sure there's a lot of people that would say no. But the people yeah. I'm reaching to are like, they, I kind of like pre-filtered them as like, okay, these are people that are excited this exists and like they're using it like heavy. Yeah, I think that's smart. Everyone should uh, do what, what Zach is talking about, which is like know what a good user looks like so that you can find kind of like a, a continuous drip or of, of new cohorts to be able to talk to. I think that's really, yeah, that's really good. Formulated my thinking around that specifically. I have a, I have a business coach named Matt and he the first thing that he ended up doing when like I decided to start working with him specifically on Addison was like, oh, like here, he sent me this survey to send out to all of our paying customers. And it's the survey that the superhuman founder used um, to find product market fit. And so it's a bunch of questions that kind of, you know, and the main key question is like, if you, if you could no longer use this tool anymore, would you be very disappointed, somewhat disappointed or not disappointed at all? And so the cohort that said that they would be very disappointed to not use your tool anymore, those are the people that you talk to and those are the people you focus on. And it's a little bit different than what most people think. And it's, and it's the mistake that I had is that I spent a lot of time trying to talk to people that signed up for the tool, stopped using it in a day, or like they didn't love the app. Um, and I was trying to figure out, oh, why don't you like the app? What realist, but what this founder, I can't remember what his name is, the founder of Superhuman Human was, or his approach was find the people that love your tool obsess about those people who already love your tool and find out what they also want because that's the kind of customers you want to attract. And so the people you might be missing out on, they might be missing a feature that someone that loves your tool already, that's kind of like how how to you know find really great product market fit. And yeah, we did the survey and added a bunch of insights. And so yeah, that's kind of how I shaped my thinking about that. It, it was a recommendation from someone else on, to do this process. And yeah, it was tremendously helpful. Yeah, I think that's great. What what has been um like when you talk to customers about the thing that they love most, what has been kind of the thing that that they align on and how do you how do you think um like how does that essentially give you give you the excitement to kind of work through all of the um just the challenges of being a founder, right? It's not it's not easy work. Yeah, I mean, I personally love building software 
products. One, it's like, I'm a little bit of like a software nerd. Like if I have a problem, the last, like the first thing I do is try to find like a tool that's built for it. And so I find a lot of just straight up enjoyment working on product. The main thing that we've heard from our customers, I think that like, so essentially what I did is I took all these answers and I put them in a word cloud to see which word was repeated the most. And the two were like discovery and collaboration. And two of those informed our roadmap pretty aggressively. Um, or sorry, inspiration and collaboration. So one, I decided to prioritize discovery, the discovery feature, allowing you to see all the ads from other artists and users. So if, if, if inspiration is what you guys are getting, let's give you guys more inspiration. So that's one. So that's still in development. The other one was collaboration. Prior to doing that survey, we only had like solo accounts where you couldn't have like team sharing and stuff like that. And I always look at team accounts as something that's like, oh, that's going to be nice to have. Let's make sure the product's good before we start charging more for it. But if people are using it for collaboration, it's like, let's enable that. And then, so yeah, our developer like pumped out team accounts like super quick, which is awesome. And people have been using it and getting more value. And for us, it's a higher value customer. So those are the two main things I got from doing that survey. And both of them led to, well, one, some development, but the other one led to, yeah, more revenue and also just at the same time, more value to the customer signing up for team plans now. So this is, I think we're in a really fascinating time in like, just the business cycle of tech and DDC and, and um, all predicated on essentially the macro headwinds we're dealing with economically, which is like shitty companies die and good companies uh, who have good unit economics and have good products, like you're saying, are coming to the fore, right? So, you know, like we said, the days of drop shipping and, and, and being able to get rich off that are gone. The days of just having a product and pumping Facebook ads and, and making money off that are gone. You need to know like, what does first purchase profitability look like? Are you going to be at break even or like what's your repeat rate? All, all of these things you have to model out for B2B business. How quickly are you delivering value? What does an LTV model look like? How quickly can you pay back the acquisition costs? All of these things, right? And I think it's funny because I can sit here and talk about all of those models and all these kind of like the, the data-driven cohort analyses. And really what it comes down to is customers. Who is your audience? Within that audience, who are the people who can become your best customers, which you just mentioned? And then how can you serve them in a very, very efficient way? And like, if you distill it down there, it's like, okay, now we understand. It's just finding the right customers and serving them efficiently so that they, first of all, want to stick around, want to expand horizontally, and then want to share your product with other people because that lowers your acquisition cost as well. And what I found through having these conversations consistently is know your numbers, know your customer right? And, and have a good product. That is it. If you have those three things in place, you'll have a really, really good, you'll have, a, you'll be able to grow a, a solid business, whether, you know, the upward bound of the business is predicated again on how much it fits in the market, how much need there is, et cetera. And so I'm curious in building the pricing model for this, how much thinking went into that? Because I, I hear like, you're super rigorous about your audience. You're super rigorous about the product. But you're also having to deal with the GTM, right? And so it's still early days. You know, you're saying like, okay, I want it's still a few months before we want to go into like full growth mode, etc. We still need to make money so you can pay your teams, all all of these things, so that the thing can exist and expand the way that you want it to. So, how did you think about building your pricing structure, both to be able to do all those things that we mentioned, but also for it not to be a blocker to getting customers in because it is a new product that they're trying. You're trying to get people to ad uh, adapt. Yeah. yeah so. How much thought went into the pricing? It, nothing that was analytical at all it was more about feeling like, what would I pay for this? What do I think other people would pay for this? I think we launched the price at a decent point, but I, I actually, okay, when you're talking about 
what I would do differently. I think we were talking about before we got on this call, but this is something I would do differently. I think we 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 launched our pricing and it's still our solo pricing is still the same. We launched it in lukewarm water and we, we launched it as like a seven. Tim Ferriss is saying that you can't rate anything a seven because it's not, it's neither good nor bad. And like our pricing is a seven. And so I think one thing that we could have done better is launch it either free from day one and then charge for it later or launch it super cheap. Or and that's one option. The reason why I wouldn't want to do that is that I think there's a there is a difference between people that are willing to pay for things versus not pay for things. And so when you're trading your actual product, it's like, do you actually want people that signed up knowing that they weren't going to need to pay? Potentially. That might be a good option. I decided to steer clear from it. And then I think we could have launched a lot higher of a price point. Uh, we are going to raise the price. So right now our pricing starts at $29 a month for one seat. And then team accounts start at $100 plus additional seats um, beyond five. Where that pricing is going to change, I think, from and to, to be completely honest with you, like selling team accounts has been a lot easier than selling the, the $29 lukewarm price where it's like, what, like, what is this like kind of thing? So I think what's going to happen with pricing is solo accounts are going to go to 49 and then team accounts are going to go to 99 plus usage on users. Because I think then it's like one that's going to name more like, Current customers are going to be grandfathered in at the old price. But if one, it's going to enable us to build more of the features we want to build in the future. And then two, it's going to get like the kind of like buy-in from the user um, of yeah. like this valuable tool. And so, yeah, that's something I would have done differently is I either would have launched it at like five bucks a month to start and then kind of came up with pricing tiers. But I think what I really wish I did was launch it at 50 bucks a month, which is where I think the pricing is going to go for a sing like just a single seat. Just because like I... I think it's easier to sell like, and this isn't from like a customer acquisition cost thing. I think pr this is purely psychological perception. Like if you're an agency that's whatever, you've got like a hundred clients and you're getting pit, you're, you were spending your time getting pitched on like a $29 a month software. And like even a $50 a month software, it's like the call is not even worth your time. Like it, oh. it'd be cheaper to start paying for it <laughs> and then decide, yeah. you know what I'm saying? So I think that's where my head has, is where my head's at in terms of pricing. But previous to our pricing like i said it was very much like oh, i think 29 sounds good yeah the pricing is so psychological it's a really really fascinating topic i think there's still not enough um there there's not enough literature around it to be honest with you um because essentially what you said is right it's it's not actually about the price it's like you're just trying to cut out as many bad customers as possible because they will drain all of your time when you do that um, I, I, I didn't want to get into the kind of all the roads we've gone down on pricing um, and, and what we've learned. And like always in every cohort, there's amazing people, but essentially it's literally the 80-20 rule. 80% of your revenue will be driven by 20% of your clients. 80% of your time will be wasted by 20% of your clients. And so pricing is really the like the number one way that you can essentially screen for value. And so it, like act accordingly. Both, by the way, this is for... DTC companies as well, right? I literally head to toe right now besides my hat in Viore. And like, you price it at a certain price, you know, you're going to get a certain customer. First of all, probably if the product's good, they're going to have high repeat rate. And like those customers tell their friends about it. So they're going to have higher value friends or higher value people. And then they don't return as much stuff. They're not going to be as finicky because they've kind of said like, okay, I'm buying a higher, you know, a higher value product. Yeah, I, I completely buy that. So we're going to wrap up with a few quick rapid fires. I think that was a great way to uh, great way to end that uh, the detail portion. 
So how do you get your best ideas? Because you have you have like a very, very unique, like uniform vision about what you want this to be. How do you, where do you source all of these things from? I don't have like a process for it. I would say that like it often happens in motion in a way that's like while I'm it's it's while I'm working, it's while you're doing the work. And there's this really, really good book called The War of Art. Um mm-hmm. that any creative person should read. And it kind of talks about summoning what the founder or sorry, the writer of this book, author, um, Stephen Pinker says is like summoning the muse, which is like calling upon ideas. Like if we're talking about like a godlike figure, you know, implanting ideas in your head, the way that he responds is by you doing the work that you're going to do if you had the great idea anyway. And so, I mean, I have like a lot of like random little things of just like little tasks that I do no matter what. And that's, where the ideas and the flow come into is just by starting without the idea. And I would say like, those are for like, while you're moving ideas, like those are like little ideas for Addison, blah, blah, blah. Where I get larger ideas from, like, for example, like the actual idea for Addison is like, I'm pretty like hypercritical of everything. Like everything that I experience in my life, I look at it through a pretty negative lens and it, and not in a way that I think my life is like a negative, but it's like, Oh, how would I do everything better? If I go to a smoothie shop, I'm, and I don't, I didn't train myself to do this, but like, I'm consistently thinking like, what could be better here? Like, you know, like if I'm just standing around, like that's what I'm thinking about. And so that's kind of how I come up with big ideas just like not big ideas, but the larger kind of overarching ideas that I have is just like, if I'm feeling something that sucks, like I don't dwell in it. I just like take that as an opportunity to like in my head, like think about how I would do it better. And that comes down to like when I interact with a piece of software, when I watch something, when I see an ad, I kind of consistently am always like in the back of my head thinking like, what do I, what don't I like about this? What do I like about this? And how would I do it? And yeah, that's kind of always running in the background. But more than anything, it's sitting down, starting to work, no matter what it is, like the good ideas will find you in motion. So it's just like kind of like get moving. Yeah, that's a, that's a keeper right there. The good ideas will find you in motion. So get moving. I love that. <laughs> so I have two, two final ones. What's the skill that served you best in life? I have an idea of what yours will be, but I'm curious what you think it is. I don't know if it's a skill. Like One of my highest value skills now is a designer, but none. I did not set out to be one. So like, it's not like I was like, oh, I'm going to become a designer and like, so I, I don't even look at myself very much as like a, a designer. Like I design things, but I am not a designer mainly because like most of the things that the, the reason why I design is to get other things done or to, or to convince someone of something or to facilitate like another kind of like core business aspect. And so I think, you know, one of my greatest talents is I'm pretty good at design now after like 10 years of tinkering and doing design stuff, but my highest value like skill, I think I do approach things with like a good amount of ignorance. And like, I've always had an idea that I never wanted to grow up. I feel like everyone near like, everyone when you're young is like, everyone's like, grow up. Like they're, they're, they're trying to like get you to grow up. And I always had like a strong aversion to it. So like, I think a lot of the things that get rid of ignorance are things that are, you know, they run horizontally to the ideas that ask you to grow up. And I have a strong aversion to those just innately. And so I think often I approach things with like a good amount of ignorance and kind of play that has served me pretty well. And I mean, like an example of that is like a lot of the things that's happened from Triple Whale, you know, like we approach things a lot, like very differently there. Like 
the entire team and they give me like a lot of like freedom to do different things when it comes to design. Like, yeah, like a good amount of ignorance and like a disdain for like, oh, how it's supposed to be done. I, I think that that's the thing that served me the, the best. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And so the no best practices, like just just yeah. go into it yeah, with the kind of a childlike lens and and be be curious. I love that. So I guess the uh the last big one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Uh your life's gonna be made up of decisions, make good ones. It was very simple. Like I heard it when I was like very, very young. It was in the lens of like someone telling me to like not smoke cigarettes. But yeah, your life's full of decisions, make good ones. And I think it gives, I, what I like about it is like, it gives you the option to make the decision. I think often people try to give advice like, this is what you should do. Like this piece of advice is like, you get to make the decision still, but yeah. your life is going to be the product of the decisions you make. And I think it's a very simple one and it gives people the amount of freedom that I think allow them to be individuals and live their life. But in the back of your head, it's like, oh, like, is this a good decision? Not because, yeah. oh, I need to make the good decision. My life's going to be a product of this. So. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just like a pro your life is a product, right? And it's just different different paths based on the way that you use the product or, or or decide to use, you know, frame up your life. So that's, yeah, that's brilliant. So the two last ones are, what's the podcast you're listening to right now? I listen, uh, religiously, I listen to Joe Rogan all the time. Uh, but business-wise, My First Million, I really like it. Yeah, Sean's actually a customer of Addison, which is super cool. But yeah, those are the two that I would say, like, I never let, I never let them go on listen to. Cool. And then what's the, uh, who should we talk to next? Like what, who do you think would be a cool person for us to interview? Have you had Rabba on from Triple We haven't had Rob. Okay. He's our CMO. I would say he was one, he's got a podcast, um, like a Triple L podcast. Um, so who knows like which way it goes, but he's great on podcasts. And if we're talking about like tapped in thumb on the pulse of like e-com. Yeah and D to C and stuff like that. Like he's talking to the most store owners. He's talking to the most agencies and he's knee deep freaking forehead deep in triple well. So I would say like that he'll, he'll definitely be able to bring some fire. Cool, man. That's great. Well, I appreciate it. You, you drop knowledge. It's funny. So you are our first B2B founder that's been on. We've been doing D2C and then we, I mean, we've been doing agencies, but this has been, it's like, it's funny because I think in B2B all the time, right? Cause that's where, that's my thing. And so, it's fun to get into the tactics of it because it's it's the same, but it's different. Um, so it was really, really great cracking your head open. I think what you're building is super special and uh, people are really lucky to be able to kind of learn from you on this. Thank you for sharing your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ad Creative from Pencil. We hope you enjoyed our chat and learned a thing or two that can help you grow your business and think more creatively. If you have someone you think we should interview, just hit me up on Twitter. Also a small favor, if you could please share and review this, we want our guests' amazing insights to reach as much of the community as possible. And your ratings help. Till next time, add some creativity into your life. Thanks.